Who's been enjoying presence, power and purpose, the whole thing with the book of Acts? You know, it's exciting, isn't it? Presence, power and purpose. And yet as we work our way deeper into the book of Acts, we come across some really challenging things because we all want the presence of God, we all want the power of God and we want the purpose of God for us released. So let me start with a, uh, well, let me start by opening in prayer, actually, because this one's going to challenge you and I believe take you further in your, in your journey with the Lord. And so, Lord, I just want to thank you that um, there is nothing like the power of the Word of God. It has the power to smash the hardest rocks. It has the power in fire to, to absolutely wipe out all your enemies. There is something about the word of God that comes and takes root in us that we might become trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. We thank you, Father God, for the transformation and change that you release out of your word. And as I preach your word today, Lord, I pray, Father God, that the anointing would so rest upon the word as it goes forth that it would take root in each and every heart in this place and we would all go from the level of glory we're at now into the next in the name of Jesus. I want to start with a quote from one of the church fathers, the early church fathers. We're going back to, let's see, 155 or around 200 AD. So a couple of centuries after Jesus, there was a church father, a very important figure in the church named Tertullian. And uh, he ministered in Africa and he was based in Carthage in the days of the Roman Empire and he knew what persecution meant to the church. We're going into Acts 7 today. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, you're going to be intimately familiar with it in a few moments. And here's the quote for which this man is universally known. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And uh, if we go to uh, one of those scriptures in the New Testament, which we're not so fond of quoting, 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says this, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Are you guys ready for persecution? <laughs> there is a cost. Kylie's communion message is in line with what God has been speaking to me about as I started looking at the tail end of Acts 6, the whole of Acts 7, and the very beginning of Acts 8. So today as we launch into Presence, Power, and Purpose Part 4, we're going to look at how persecution grew against the church and the great example given to us in Acts 6 and 7, and that example is the life of and death of Stephen. So in Acts 6, going back to verse 2, they have a situation here where um, there are thousands now of believers in Jerusalem because of the revival started by Pentecost, and some of the widows 
um, who are feeding families, feeding their families and finding it very difficult, feel like they're missing out. So in Acts 6 verse 2 it starts, where Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So what are they looking for? What are these first 12 apostles looking for when they're they're considering appointing people into the leadership of this particular helps ministry? They're looking for good reputation. They're looking for people that are full of the Holy Spirit. They're looking for people who are full of wisdom, who can be trusted in leadership and who are prepared to serve. The church raises servant leaders. Goes on in verse 5 that the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them and they blessed them and released them into this particular aspect of ministry. Now, we're going to focus on Stephen here, but just bear in mind, one of the other guys of these seven is a guy named Philip. And when the persecution became so great in Jerusalem later on that the church was scattered out into Judea and Samaria and started going out to the ends of the earth, Philip was the guy who brought revival to an entire province, Samaria. Never underestimate what God can do through your willingness to serve. So uh, they were willing to serve. They were full of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, it says that the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And I just want to give you a little more complete picture here. The church, the ecclesia of the Lord, is now exploding in numbers as a result of what all these servants of the Lord are doing. Not just the apostles, not just the leaders, but everybody is involved in the spread of the gospel. And these seven servant leaders that are appointed are also preaching the gospel, which we, we shall see. But I also want you to get a picture of the challenge that was placed before Stephen and his friends. Because we're talking about probably 10,000 around that uh, amount of people, perhaps of women who are desperate to feed their families. And so Stephen is being put in charge of the distribution of food. Now, um, can I tell you that on the face of it, this is not a great promotion in the eyes of man. The last thing I would want to be doing is facing down 5,000 women desperate for food for their families and saying, well, you can have this much and and you can have this much. And they wouldn't all just be going at it like this at each other. They'd be going at me, some of which I've experienced, but certainly not thousands all at the same time, all desperate for their food. So (laughs) it goes on to say in this scripture that many of the priests were obedient to the faith. In other words, 
the uh, the the uh, the priests of the old covenant were coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit because of the ministry of all these disciples and all these apostles, and they were converting into being Christians. And this is nothing less than a spiritual revolution, and it's, and it's coming about because these young men like Stephen and Philip, they're not just waiting on tables. They're not just making sure that the widows are provided for. They're actually preaching the Word of God with signs and wonders following. There is no reason why signs and wonders should not follow you in any area in which you serve. You can be walking down the street and God can, say, God can say, go and talk to that person because I want to do something in their life. <laughs> and you can just keep walking and you miss the opportunity for God to do something in them and for God to promote you because of your obedience. And in Acts 6 verse 8, it says specifically that Stephen, full of faith, just say, I am full of faith, full of faith. and power. I am full of power. I declare over you, you are people of faith and power and you are called to be world changers. Full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And before launching further into this, I want to just touch on three things that signs and wonders have a purpose for. Number one, they are an expression of the kingdom of heaven and its advancement and taking away of territory from the enemy. That's number one. Secondly, they demonstrate the compassion of God toward those who are suffering. We know that Jesus did signs and wonders and healings as a proof that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. But that's not the number one reason that Jesus healed. He healed because he had compassion for those who were suffering. So secondly, signs and wonders demonstrate the compassion of God toward those who are suffering. And thirdly, and possibly most importantly, when God does this through us, the reason he released signs and wonders through us is because they glorify Jesus. We are here to glorify Jesus. We're never here to draw people to ourselves. We're always here to act as signposts to Jesus. And the enemy hates it. He hates the prophetic. He hates healing. He hates deliverance. He hates signs and wonders. He hates Jesus and he hates you. <laughs> Sorry, guys. You're in a war, whether you, whether you like to admit it or acknowledge it or not. If you're in a war, you may as well get in the fight and win a few battles. Because the eternal victory has already been determined by the blood of Jesus. Amen? <laughs> And the enemy hates you in particular because he can't get to God, so he comes for those who carry the anointing. You are carriers of the anointing. It's the anointing that breaks yokes. It's the anointing that exposes spiritual strongholds like witchcraft and rebellion and Leviathan and Jezebel and all those things that come against the kingdom of God in their different manifestations. Without the anointing, what you have is a set of beliefs expressed in words. Is that right? If I'm just quoting the Bible and this guy's quoting the Quran. You can weigh it up. We may carry truth, and of course we do carry truth. We carry the ultimate truth. We carry the absolute truth that Jesus died so that we could be reconciled to our loving Heavenly Father. 
But God's intention is that the truth you preach in words be confirmed by the power of the Holy Spirit. The biggest miracle out of all the things that God might use you for is that the dead spirit in a person might be brought to life because when we receive Jesus and Lord and Saviour, our spirit man comes to life. Hallelujah. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 4.20, Paul teaches us that the kingdom of God is not in word but in power. In other words, not just the words that we speak. It's not just what we preach out of our mouths. It's the example that we set before others. But it's also the power of God through us for the transformation from death into life. And so now in this segment, in this part of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7 we're going into, the kingdom of God is being manifested everywhere in signs and wonders through an ordinary man and this collides with the kingdom of darkness. Stephen is serving, he's preaching, he's doing whatever he can to play his part in expanding the kingdom and the Holy Spirit is showing up in power and then he runs into trouble. When the Holy Spirit begins to show up through your ministry, you can expect trouble. In this world you shall have tribulation, but fear not, for I have overcome the world. Mark it as a badge of honor that the enemy bothers to harass you. (laughs) He's harassing you because you're doing something for God. He doesn't care if you just sit in a pew and spend an hour or so in church once a week and never engage the kingdom of darkness in any battle. He's okay if you're a neutralized Christian just not doing anything. But when you begin to step into the fight, I want to tell you, you're in a fight. Why am I thinking about Mike Tyson's 50-year-old comeback right now? You're never too old to make a comeback in the kingdom of God, can I tell you? (laughs) And they're theorizing that Mike Tyson at 50 has got more punching power than he did in his 20s. That's a scary proposition. (laughs) And so... And so Stephen is preaching, he's serving, he's doing all these things. And then it says in verse 9 of, uh, I think we're in Acts 6. Uh, then there arose, thank you Kwame for confirming that we're in Acts 6. <laughs> then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, in brackets, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. I mentioned before that the young men set aside for the job of distributing food were preaching. Stephen and his friends were preaching Christ in the synagogues of Jerusalem. This is something that takes courage because the synagogues were for the most part driven by the religious spirit. The same spirit that was brought to bear upon Jesus so that he was crucified. Even though we know that Jesus was not... uh, Jesus gave up his life voluntarily. Nobody took it from him. But that religious spirit was at work to bring him to that place of of crucifixion. And so Stephen was preaching Christ in the synagogues of Jerusalem. Who here has heard of the ministry of a guy called Daz Shettle? He's a New Zealand guy 
who preaches all over the place. I saw some footage of him uh, walking into mosques in Christchurch and Auckland to engage the people in those mosques about the truth of the gospel. This is, that's a modern equivalent of what Stephen was doing here. He was preaching Christ in hostile territory. And even though his message of the risen Christ was being backed by miracles, signs and wonders, there was this one synagogue in particular that took great offence. And the people in this synagogue were from Africa and Turkey, that the region that we would call Africa and Turkey today. And they were Roman slaves who had been set free and were now followers of the Jewish religion. And they were being indoctrinated into the temple and synagogue system. And I believe that Stephen was preaching the truth of the gospel. And for somebody to be a slave who had been set free and to be, to be hearing about the ultimate freedom, which is what Jesus purchased for us, and to reject it, my question would be how strong must the spirit of religion have been upon that synagogue to so want to persecute a man of God who was operating in signs and wonders? Amen. They were not happy that Stephen is preaching the Christ, crucified and risen, nor are they happy that signs and wonders are following the preaching of the word and then in verse 10, it says this, And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And when I, when I read that verse or reread that verse, you know what it's like? You go, to the, you go through the word of God and, and every now and then God will stop you in your tracks at a particular scripture. And this was one of them. This is one of the most astounding things that I've read. Even though this man, Stephen, was clearly anointed, clearly called by God, even though the argument, arguments raised against him were repudiated by the wisdom he carried, even though the word that he spoke was being backed by signs and wonders and by the power of the Holy Spirit to the point where they had no arguments left and they could not resist, they persecuted, they continued to persist in persecuting him. This is the hatred of the truth in action. And so here we come to the question for those of you who carry and are growing in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. What price are you willing to pay? It's a little quiet in here. There was a lot of bellowing going on in the house in praise and worship. <laughs> Not so much now. <laughs> what price are you willing to pay for the anointing that you've been called to carry? <laughs> Is it worth your life? <laughs> because as we will see, it cost Stephen his. And in Revelation 12, 11, when the Bible speaks about us as overcomers, it says this about us, about you, about me, about us as a congregation, that they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. And they did not love their lives to the death. Clap with me. And they did not love their lives to the death. I should get this man up to rap with me while I'm doing that. <laughs> we need a beat running behind that. <laughs> you shouldn't have nodded then, bro. You're up there. <laughs> they did not love their lives to the death. 
So you carry the blood on the doorposts of your life. You carry the word of the testimony on your lips. But let me tell you, you cannot love your life more than you love Jesus. Because the definition of faith, the ultimate definition of faith is that you do not love your life to the death. We all carry a promise of destiny over our lives. But if you love the promise you have been given more than the one who gave you the promise, you will hinder what God wants you to do. Don't worship the promise. Worship Jesus. Because the place that he will take you to is down a different path to the one that you have devised for yourself. Where do we see this in the Word of God? Look at Joseph boasting in his dream. Before all the calamity befell Joseph, it says that he brought a bad report of his brothers to his father. There was something in Joseph's character that needed to be dealt with for him to come to the fullness of his promise. And if God had said to him, your brothers are going to reject you, they're going to talk about killing you, they're going to throw you down a pit, you're going to get rescued out of there, you're going to go to Egypt, you're going to end up in the captain of the, can't remember what his position was, Potiphar's house, then Potiphar's wife's going to try and seduce you, you're going to jail for years, all this stuff's going to happen, you're going to have these dreams, one of them's going to bring you out, then you're going to become second in command of all of Egypt. I wonder if he would have gone, no, 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 not me. And he would have because he was in pride. Humility is the key to releasing what God has for you in destiny. And in fact, the Bible says in Psalm 105, 19 of Joseph that until the time that his word came to pass... The word of the Lord, in other words, the promise over his life, tested him. (laughs) Have you been tested by your promise so that you can have what God has promised? And if you are in a place where you can't see the promise coming, is the promise maker enough for you? Because if the promise maker is enough for you, the promise keeper will begin to start releasing to you what he's promised. You are being tested. I'm being tested. We're all being tested. And guess what? We get the flunk multiple times. As many times as you want to go around the mountain, you just keep going. But at some point, God is going to say, Johnny boy, Haven't we gone around this mountain enough times for you to realize this is not the way you're supposed to be going? (laughs) Come on, church. Come on, church. We're going somewhere. Look at Abraham. Oh, my goodness. Birthing an Ishmael because he wanted the promise too much and he couldn't see how it could come about. But when he learned obedience by the things that he suffered, and that's how we learn whether we like it or not, by the things that we suffer, he walked willingly toward Mount Moriah with his only son, the son of promise, fully prepared to sacrifice the promise for the eternal promise. 
Hallelujah. You want to carry all that God has promised you? Come on, give me a show of hands. You want to carry all that God has promised you? Some of you seem a little undecided in the house this morning. Come on, how many of you want to carry the promise? You want to fully carry the promises over you? Okay, I have a word for you. Get ready to die. <laughs> Get ready to die. You know that... Oh, I used to love those boxing matches where the guy goes, let's get ready to rumble. Well, let's get ready to die. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> get ready to die. Get ready to die to self for a start and then get ready to die literally if necessary. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You've got to understand that there are millions of Christians around the globe today who are living the reality that their blood is the seed of the growth of the gospel. So these jealous, cunning, religious, scheming people begin to plot to kill Stephen. And it says in verse 11, Acts Six, I believe we're still there, Kwame. Is that right? Thank you, my brother. Acts 6, verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council, all for speaking the truth back by signs and wonders. They were coming after him the same way they came after Jesus with accusations of blasphemy. They stirred up those who lacked the maturity to discern what was actually happening in the spirit realm. This is a fulfillment of the words of Jesus in John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you. This is Jesus speaking. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I'm preaching the good news this morning, church. <laughs> there is joy in an acknowledgement of the truth to which we are called that our lives are willing sacrifices before the cross of Jesus. There is joy to be found in what I'm preaching. I feel the joy. It's not an emotion. It's something that comes upon you in the spirit, man. Verse 13, they also set up false witnesses. He said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. In that, they were correct. Because Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple. He said he would rebuild it in three days. How did he rebuild it? By rising from the dead. But now no longer in places of stone and wood but now in the hearts of those who follow him and change the customs which Moses delivered to us all those religious rituals that they had to go through year after year after year were done away with because we can come boldly to the throne of grace because of the perfect sacrifice once and for all of the beautiful lamb of God Whew. Revival had come to the people of God. There was a spiritual revolution taking place. God would no longer dwell in a temple made by men's hands, but would take up residence in every heart who submits their life to Jesus. And that temple system was being done away with. And in verse 15, 
There he is before the council and all of those who sat in the council, it says in verse 15, looking steadfastly at him. Like they were interrogating him, right? And they're looking steadfastly at him. And they saw his face as the face of an angel. So powerful was the presence of God upon this man who was prepared to lay everything down. Acts 7 verse 1, the high priest decides to step into the equation. And it says, uh, Acts 7 verse 1, are these things so? And Stephen then gave his defense. I'm not going to go through that whole defense now, although I would suggest to you it is just as powerful as the first time Peter preached on the streets of Jerusalem because what he did was he gave that ruling council the Reader's Digest version, if you like, of uh, God's dealings with the nation of Israel going right back from the start to the present day. And he did it in just a few short minutes. And again, just as the people in the synagogue of the freedmen could not resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke, again, what he says is irresistible because he was giving an accurate portrayal of God's relationship with Israel through all those years. And so what follows in Acts 7 is a concise recounting of God's dealings with his people. But at the end, he starts coming to a climax by touching on Solomon's declaration that no house can properly contain God and a prophetic word from Isaiah 66. And he quotes those in Acts 7, 48 to 50, where he says, However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? He's quoting Solomon and he's quoting Isaiah. He's saying to these people who are examining him according to the Lord, this is what your law says is coming. And this is what I'm preaching. It's already here. And what he says next is bold in the extreme. Remember back in Acts 4, we talked about um, how um, when the disciples in Jerusalem were first pers persecuted and they gathered together after that persecution in Acts 4.29, it says that they came together and they ended up saying, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants... Not deliverance, not the death of their persecutors, but this. Grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Boldness in the Lord is a supernatural thing. It's something that comes upon you when you know that you've got nothing left to lose and you're saying, God, I'm laying it all on the line. Because everything Stephen has said up until this point is really just a summary of God's dealings with Israel. Nobody in that council can argue with a word of what he has said. But now, and here's the thing, knowing that he is facing the same persecution in the same manner that Jesus himself faced, he looks at his accusers and says the following, knowing all the while that by the words that are about to come out of his mouth, he is sealing his own death warrant. Acts 7.51. This is what he says. 
You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. And with that, with those words, unless deep repentance fell upon the listeners, his death was assured. And it says in verse 54 that when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. That's what it looks like. Grinding your teeth together. It possessed. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Whew. And said, look, as if, well, I'm just gonna, he's, he's, it's like he's saying to them while they're gnashing their teeth at him, I'm going to put the icing on the cake right here. Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice. They would have gone, Aah! and run at him, stopped their ears. They ran at him with one accord. Unfortunately, one accord is not just something that's supposed to be manifested amongst the church. Sometimes one accord is something that all the persecutors come, come together in. They ran at him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Do not excuse Saul at this point in the story just because it says he was a young man. This guy was raised by Gamaliel. This guy was raised to be a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he may not have been entrusted with the hurling of stones, but they entrusted their valuables at his feet while they loosened their limbs to hurl more rocks at Stephen the accused. He was not some innocent child. Verse 59, and they stoned Stephen. He was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord do not charge them with this sin. <sighs> and when he had said this, he fell asleep. Acts 1, Acts 8, sorry, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. He was like, yeah, you missed that brick over there. See if you can hit him in the forehead with it. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. I believe God spared the apostles to stay in Jerusalem to so study the word and establish the doctrine of the new covenant. That's why the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Let's go back to the start of our journey through the book of Acts for a minute before we close. Because I just mentioned that they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea 
and Samaria, right? Acts 1 verse 8, this is one of the scriptures we open this whole series with. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me. And I pointed out that witnesses is the same word that's interchangeable with martyr. Witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. That's Acts 1.8. Reverse it. Acts 8.1. And now they're all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. God's word is being fulfilled through the blood of the martyr. And to the end of the earth. Up until this point, revival had been confined to Jerusalem. And people, it says in Acts 5, were coming and bringing their sick and demon-possessed from all the surrounding cities to Jerusalem to be prayed for. And they were all being healed. The gold standard of the presence of God was being established at this time in the church. And now the enemy said, I'm going to stop this. I'm going to kill the most anointed ones among them. He already failed doing that the first time. The most high, the most anointed one, Jesus himself. He thought, oh, I've got this victory because I crucified Jesus. But he rose on the third day in ultimate victory and now his all his followers were prepared to make the same sacrifice are we as well (sighs) it wasn't until persecution became as murderous as we see here that Jesus words about being witnesses in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth began to become a reality Because they had to flee Jerusalem. They had to flee this persecution, but they carried the Spirit of the Lord with them. What they carried was not dependent upon a temple system where they sacrificed the blood of goats and lambs. What they carried within them was guaranteed by the one perfect sacrifice of the Lamb of God. The enemy can take a lot of stuff from you, but he can't take the presence of God from you. And if you do not love your life to the death, you will be a witness no matter what your circumstances are trying to dictate to you. What was it that Tertullian said again? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When I mention it, you can exchange the word witness with martyr. In the original Greek, it begs the question of us, how far are we prepared to go to re-present Jesus? Take up your cross and follow him. For many Christians across the face of the earth, when they take up their cross, they're taking up their cross to give up their earthly tent. What price are you prepared to pay for the anointing of God upon your life? Did you know that in nations of the earth where there is severe persecution, there there are standards being applied to Christian discipleship that we would never dream of here so far in the West? For instance, in the Chinese house church movements, You won't be appointed into a leadership role of any kind unless you've already been to prison for your faith. No wonder they can't stop that house church movement. (laughs) 
And so I want to, um, you know, we'll open up the altars after this in a minute for people who would like ministry, but I believe that God is asking us to make a stand. You go to build a house, you count the cost before you build it, right? Jesus said, if you take up the plough and you turn back, you're not worthy of the plough. <laughs> and yet the grace of God is such that in any aspect of our calling where we have failed the Lord or where we have fallen short of what he has called us to be and how we have been called to represent him, the beautiful grace of God is such that when we come before him and we say, God, this standard that I see applied in the book of Acts, I want applied to my life. I tell you what, he will apply it to you. He will do something in your heart of transformation where the price that you've had to pay so far and the price you may have to pay in the future is nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to remain seated for a moment. I'm going to get the worship team up. Um, and Irene, if you could just choose a, a song that's most uh, appropriate. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, and so, um, look, I don't want to make this a general thing. You know, like if I say, you know, if you're willing to pay the price for the gospel, would you stand? <laughs> then everyone's going to be shamed into standing, <laughs> right? Because we're all Christians. I just want to make a, a declaration over those who would say in their hearts today and would acknowledge before their brothers and sisters, that there are areas in this in which you have fallen short and you just want the grace of God to be reapplied over your commitment to his kingdom, would you stand? Because I want to pray for you all at once. Wow, man, that's like most of the congregation. And, you know, I would include myself in that because, you know, we're really good at self-preservation. <laughs> We're not good at saying, God, do with me whatever you want. I don't care what the cost is. But I believe that there is an anointing in this place right now to equip you, to equip you with a commitment that goes far beyond anything you have stepped into before in your life. I don't want any music yet, please. I just want to, Pete, please, please, nothing for a minute. I just want to, I want to speak something over you. I want to thank you, Jesus, that your blood has paid a perfect price for us to walk in perfect submission. And I thank you, Lord, that your grace is upon each one of us here, myself included, who has walked that out imperfectly. Your perfect sacrifice is much greater than my imperfect obedience. I want to make that declaration over everybody gathered here that there is an anointing coming upon every single person right now where you are simultaneously counting the cost and laying down your life afresh 
to the Lord so he can do whatever he wants to do in and through us. I release that word in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I speak to those on live stream. I want to thank you for joining us this morning. And I want to thank you, God, that you are doing a transforming work in the lives of those watching on live stream at the moment. And I thank you, Father God, for what your word is achieving in us. Amen. Amen. Now before.